Uh, Father, we, we come to you this morning and we confess um, our need for, for you to open our eyes to see. But not just our eyes to see, but, but for our hearts to respond to your word. Father, the, the change that we need, the life that, that we need to, to have grow inside of us isn't something that we can manufacture on our own. And doesn't even come, as we see in this passage, from accumulating certain truths from Scripture. What it comes is your Holy Spirit opens our hearts to obey you and to love you because you first loved us. So would you do that this morning? Would you open our hearts to uh, obey and love you in response to your love first for us? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're in... 1 Corinthians chapter 8 this morning, all of chapter 8. So if you're hoping for a bigger section in this series where we'd cover a whole chapter, this is the section. Um, and as we're jumping in, as we've been doing uh, the last several times that I've, I've been preaching, we're just going to do a bit of a, kind of a summary of kind of what we've been looking at to orient us to this passage. And we'll just get into the, the meat and the, the bones, the meat and potatoes uh, of the passage itself. So, so far in 1 Corinthians, Paul, in various ways, has been applying the wisdom of the gospel to various situations that were happening for this church in Corinth, to complex questions that that were going on about daily life and what was going on in their church. And we've seen bits and pieces throughout the letter of that gospel wisdom explained. In the first couple of chapters, we saw that gospel wisdom explained and applied. And and we saw that it had something to do with Jesus' sacrificial love on the cross. Something that the Corinthians, the Greeks, the Romans would have despised as a weak and a foolish thing. And which Paul says, no, this is true wisdom. This is true strength. This is the only thing that brings true life into this world. The sacrificial love of God in weakness shown on the cross of Jesus. Stop boasting in your strength. Stop boasting in your wisdom. Look to the gospel. Look to what God has done in Jesus. And then in chapters 5 and 6, we saw Paul show us this gospel wisdom. And uh, 5, 6, and 7, I should say, as it pertains to our identity. And he showed us the way that to live wisely according to the gospel as Christians, we must be people who trust all that God has made us to be. Who trust all that we are as new creations in Christ, trusting our new identity in him. And to live wisely according to the gospel as Christians, we must live then as we really are. People who are washed people who are sanctified, people who are justified in the name of Jesus our Lord and by the Spirit of our God. And we saw in chapter 7 this beautiful way that, that this new identity that we have in Christ is this glorious thing that means that we don't have to change who we are in, our, in terms of our station in our lives in order to somehow please God. We don't have to do that because we have all that we need already as Christians in him and he's pleased with us as we are in Christ We have a relationship with the God we were created for. We are made for him and in him we are, whether we are single or married, slave or free, circumcised or uncircumcised, or carpenter or professor or doctor or lawyer, whatever it might be. And all of these things have been true. They all have to do with applying gospel wisdom to matters of daily life. But I'm wondering this morning, how would you articulate what gospel wisdom is? 
how would you express it concretely? If somebody next to you, you look next to you right now, and you can just sneak over a look and see who's sitting next to you. If, if, uh, if, if they came to you and asked you a question, and they said, hey, this is what's going on in my life. I don't know how to handle the situation. How would you think through that situation with, with a clear, concrete rubric of gospel wisdom and truth? I think this is one thing that we're, we're still grappling with and trying to understand it and the letter. But there's good news for us this morning because in 1 Corinthians 8, verses 1 to 13, this whole chapter, Paul begins to give a very concrete gospel wisdom definition for the Corinthians to use. And he does it in the situation the Corinthians are facing in this food sacrifice to idol situation. What is gospel wisdom? Paul's about to, to show us in some very concrete ways in this particular situation where the Corinthians were dealing with food offered to idols. So we're going to see this in three points. We're going to look at gospel wisdom. We're going to see what it is. We're going to look at Corinthian knowledge. I'm going to look at gospel wisdom applied. So look with me at our first point, gospel wisdom in verses 1 to 3. Paul writes, Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. So notice first that Paul's changing the subject here in chapter 7. It says, now concerning food, sacrifice to idols. And if you remember just really quick that chapters 1 to 6 had to do with Paul responding to reports that he'd heard about what was going on at Corinth. And now from chapter 7 all the way to chapter 11, he's now responding to questions that they had sent to him and that he's answering. Now here in chapter, uh, chapter 8, the very beginning, he's uh, starting um, with, to answer this new question. Now concerning food offered to idols. But as he begins this new section about food offered to idols, he starts with a gospel principle. And it's one that we'll see him applying throughout the next several chapters and is arguably at the heart and the very center of the whole letter to 1 Corinthians. What's that principle? We'll look at how Paul begins to describe it in the second half of chapter 8, verse 1. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. See, Paul's talking to the Corinthians about what will lead to their life and to their flourishing. So what he's concerned about is how they will grow as the church of Jesus. How this temple that they are of the Holy Spirit can be constructed with strength, with robustness that will last for the ages. And he says, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. He's talking about two things that have the appearance of growth, but only one that has true substance. So to think about this, I was thinking of an illustration, and, and this is the, the, the best illustration I could come up with. It's not a very good one, so bear with me. Um, if you think of a bouncy castle and a castle, right? And you watch them being constructed. They both have the appearance of growth, but one of those castles <laughs> will stand the test of time and can bear real weight. The other one is just inflated with a lot of air. It's really emptiness, right? 
And you try to load that thing up and it just comes collapsing down. See, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Two things that have growth, one just the appearance of it and one the substance. And the problem was that the Corinthians were putting their confidence in knowledge for the growth of the church. In knowledge, and they're boasting in knowledge rather than in love. They loved knowledge. You see, before they were Christians, the Corinthians were obsessed with hearing the latest teaching that would wander through the streets of, of Corinth and come around. They would attend all of the talks. They'd listen to all of the podcasts. They subscribed to every podcast. All the latest and greatest. They listened to all the bestsellers and read them and had audible subscriptions and all those things. And when they became Christians, what they did is they transposed this love of knowledge that they had over into the religious sphere. Oh, now we love learning about the truth of the Bible. Now we love learning these theological truths. They're even better than the truths of this world. And they're filling their mind up with all of this knowledge. They like to boast about it. But in this case, as we'll see in a minute, their knowledge, it it was technically correct. But it was also horribly wrong and missed the point because they weren't living and acting in love towards others. They were puffing up, but not building up. And Paul says they were even self-assured in their knowledge. They had a swagger to themselves. You know, they're walking around confident in their knowledge. Look at verse 2. If anyone imagines that he knows something, you can just see Paul looking down. (laughs) You think you know a lot. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. You know, back when I was at seminary, I, I sometimes met people that had that swagger of, of knowledge. And they were people, I went to a really big seminary and, and it was famous in a lot of ways. And, um, and there were some people who were unbelievably intelligent that I got to meet in the, in the master's program, the grad program, the post-grad program. And, and I watched these people in, in their debates, you know, in classroom settings and what they wrote and the articles they'd be publishing. And they were intimidating in their knowledge. Like it, these guys had IQs and memories that were just unbelievable. But there were people like the Corinthians, and probably like me at the time, if I'm really honest, who thought they knew a lot more than they actually did. As I got to know them, I started to see this. And, and I, some of them in particular, they stood out to me as examples of this, where they're, they're at a seminary studying true Christian truths, competent in everything, you know, in the teaching of Christianity. And, and yet, when I looked at their lives, I was so discouraged because these are people that weren't involved in a local church. Their lives really looked nothing like Jesus' life. They weren't involved in, in a community, giving themselves in relationships of love for others. And that means that I, I think their knowledge was actually just a selfish knowledge. It was just for them. And that proved, I think, that they didn't know anything at all. It's like Paul said, if anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. You know, sometimes that happens here too at Christ City Church. Because we are people that love the truth. Praise God for that. I think we should be a people that, that love the truth. We're also a church that offers classes and reads books together and studies together. 
And I think there's a, a danger in that, that, that we can become people that just want to accumulate more and more and more knowledge for ourselves. And the danger is that we can worship knowledge and become puffed up and feel good about ourselves because the knowledge that we're studying is true and biblical. But if the knowledge we have of good things doesn't contribute to lives that are working together in love for the good of those around us, then we're just going to work to the destruction of the church. We're going to lead to tearing down the church, to that bouncy castle that can't bear any weight and just comes collapsing down. But on the other hand, Paul says, if anyone loves God, he is known by God. If anyone loves God, he is known by God. This sort of a knowledge he's contrasting with that self-assured confidence in what we know. Another way of translating this, this verse is, if anyone loves God, he or she has experienced true knowing. There's a true knowledge, but it only only, only ever comes from a rich relationship with God himself. That's where true knowledge comes from. That's where true truth is found in this relationship of love, responding to the love of God that he has for us. And this is why, I'm sure you've met these people. Some of you have met those folks that, that you're pretty sure have a lower IQ than you do. Maybe have less of an education than you do, but you look at their life and you are so confident that they know a whole lot more than you ever have. There's a wisdom and a grace to their life that just accords with reality as it is. And it's because they have this richness of this faith and this walk with Jesus that's forming who they are. It's true knowledge. After all, have you ever wondered this? How much does God really know? I mean, God knows everything, right? It's kind of like Google. You know, you just, he just knows all things. But God isn't the cloud, right? He's not a bunch of servers up in heaven with, with abstract data uh, going back and forth and running across the system. No, God is a person, a person that John, the apostle says, is love. And the immensity of his knowledge is at the same time, it's perfectly joined to actions of selfless love because that's who he is as God. And Christ said, there's no better place to see this than to look at Jesus. Whenever you want to know what God is like, look to Jesus. God has shown us himself in the person of Jesus. And when we look at Jesus, we see someone who is perfect in knowledge, but also perfect in love. I want you to look at Jesus with me in Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 to 8. And we're going to start the, kind of at the beginning of the, of the section where Paul is exhorting them to do certain things, but then he gives a reason for it in who Jesus is. He says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind. It's interesting. Think this way. <laughs> Talking about knowledge. Think this way among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus who though he was in the form of God, he did not account the equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. But taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, 
He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point, point of death, even death on a cross. How different is God's perfect knowledge from ours? You see, he knows everything, but he used his perfect knowledge to accomplish our salvation in love for us. See, he didn't look only to himself, the knowledge he had and the position that he had and the power that he had to use all that he had for himself. No, he lowered himself. First, by being born as a human being. Second, by by suffering and and living this, this life amongst us and being a servant of all. And dying on the cross in our place and for our sins. See, Paul says in chapter 8, verse 1, that knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Paul says in 8, verse 2, if anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. He experiences true knowledge in relationship with God because he's transformed in that relationship with God by God who is perfect in knowledge and also perfect in love and shows us these things to us through Jesus Christ. So what's the gospel principle that Paul's driving at then in this section? Well, I think it's this. I think it's that true knowledge, which the Corinthians love so much and many of us do as well. True knowledge is only ever demonstrated and proven in acts of selfless love for others. You want to test what you know? Test it by how your life has been changed how you live in selfless love for the good of others. Scratch the surface of your life. See what's underneath it. See, if our lives look nothing like the God who is perfect in knowledge and shows his knowledge by his love, then how much do we really know? See, Paul takes this gospel principle and he begins to apply the knowledge that the Corinthians, uh, apply it, the gospel principle that is, to the knowledge that the Corinthians had and that we're so proud of. So look at our second point, Corinthian knowledge in verses four to six. Paul goes on, he says, Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. Praise the Lord. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Isn't that beautiful? This is glorious truth. Glorious truth that, that maybe was recited in the Corinthian churches that they held on to and loved and cherished. But here's what was going on in Corinth. And here's why it was a problem. There's three things that we need to understand about the Corinthian context before we move on. I'm going to show you three things and we're going to come back to this. So keep all that in your mind. First, we need to know this. Corinth, as we've been learning, was a city full of temples. And because it was full of temples, it was full of idols. And because it was full of idols, archaeologists believe that it was virtually impossible to find meat in this city that had not somehow been associated with sacrifice to idols. 
right? This is just the way that it was. The meat you could buy would have been meat from the temples. The second thing we need to know is that an excavation at the temple of Asclepius is one example, just another ancient Greek god. This excavation shows that the temple had a banquet hall attached to it where feasts would have happened. So some of you guys grew up in churches that had fellowship halls. Anyone had a fellowship hall in their church growing up? Handful, couple? All right, there's a few of you. I know there's a lot of new Christians and people from different backgrounds here, but there's a handful. And those fellowship halls, I know, because I was at a church that had one too, they weren't always used for church things. Sometimes they'd be used for weddings or for fundraisers or maybe even community events. That's how these banquet halls and the temples would have been used, right? So they're places of celebration and of business and, and uh, hobnobbing and trying to work your way up in the social ranks of Corinth. That would all happen in these banquet halls associated with the temples. They tended to be for those of social status, for the rich and the powerful, And those people could attend those feasts and eat meat there. But the poor would have to walk by in the streets and just kind of like, oh yeah, I wish that I was like so-and-so. I mean, he gets to lie down there and eat this food sacrificed to idols, but I'm not even invited. There's this thing going on. And the third thing we need to realize is that meat, back in those days in Corinth, it was considered a luxury item in Corinth. I was shocked uh, this last couple weeks looking at uh, the research here and, and largely people believe at that time that the poor would have just consisted off of various grains and cereals. So if you like porridge, you'd have fit really well back in Corinth. You know, just have your your daily life of porridge. Meat wasn't for the poor. So what does that have to do with anything? Well, what was going on in Corinth was this. There were some wealthy Corinthian Christians that had privileged social positions so they could be invited to feasts at the temples and at the banquet halls. And they had knowledge, Christian knowledge, that we were just reading about, that allow them to eat this food that had been offered to idols and to not feel bad about it. After all, there's one God. We know the idols are false. And their consciences weren't affected. And Paul goes on, he says, Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. Praise the Lord. That's a beautiful truth. Paul knows it. These Corinthians that had this status and this position, this freedom in their conscience, they knew it too. And they felt comfortable eating meat offered to idols in these various settings, even lying down in the banquet hall of a temple because of these truths. These are beautiful truths. Praise God for them. But these Corinthian truths, this knowledge that they had, it was not gospel wisdom because it did not consider the needs of others in love. It puffed up, but it didn't build up. Look at verse 7. As Paul goes on, he says, however, not everybody possesses this knowledge, friends. Some, through former association with idols, they eat food like it really was offered to an idol. And their conscience being weak is defiled. See, some people had the knowledge to have untainted consciences. They had the privilege and the position to get invited to the, to the feasts and to not think twice about it. But others didn't. And the wealthy Corinthians, with their knowledge, they weren't paying attention to their poor church members who wandered by on the streets on a nice warm Corinthian evening and looked up and saw them lying down, reclining at the table and eating the meat. And these poor folks, I mean, they've been raised around idols their whole lives. Think about how that would have shaped them. 
And it was difficult for them to untangle their upbringing from the reality of these beautiful gospel truths. And some of them struggled with that a bit more than others, right? And they couldn't quite get over it. No, this, this really was sacrificed to, to maybe a demon or maybe a god. I mean, I know it's not the one true god, but, but it's a god after all, isn't it? And they wrestled with this. And if they ate food then sacrificed to an idol, they choked it down with an uneasy conscience, truly believing that it would, was offered to this demon or lesser god. So what are, they, what are they to do? Well, Paul applies gospel wisdom to this situation. This is where we see this gospel wisdom applied. We'll see that in our third point now as you look at verses 9 to 13. Paul says, But take care that this right of yours, it's a right, they are free to do the things that they've been doing. Take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. This is not a neutral matter. You are sinning against the Lord Jesus in the way you disregard where other people in the community are at. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. See, because the strong Corinthians, they considered what was true, they considered what they had a right to do, but not what was loving to the brothers. Because of that, they were destroying the faith of some in the church. Look again at verses 10 to 12. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, reclining, you got to imagine the way that, that the old ancients would lie down at table. Lie, they're lying down, enjoying themselves in a temple, eating meat offered to idols. And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. See, the weaker brother was destroyed because they were led away into feelings of compromise as they saw this person reclining in that way. Maybe feelings of jealousy against them. Also feelings probably of shame and confusion and maybe back even into idol worship because of the actions of their brothers. So what does Paul say? Verse 13, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat. If food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. This is surprising. Surprising not because it's the first time we see a vegetarian in the history of the world. It's surprising because Paul has already acknowledged that idols are false. The strong are actually right about what they know. And they have a right to eat meat. And yet, even though all of that's true, a lot more is needed to live wisely according to the gospel. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. See, love builds up. And Christ said, when we love somebody, we're willing to consider how our actions might affect them. How might the things that I do and the ways that I am living affect my brothers and sisters here around me. To use the analogy of my marriage, uh, I'm, I'm married 
I've become one with my wife. And if I pretend that I'm just uh, my own and live however I want, it has terrible consequences for my wife as I leave her alone with the kids all day and just ski endlessly at Whistler. It'd be glorious. But my actions have a direct reflection and and effect on, on her. And here at Christ City Church, it's the same. It's the same. Because the union of marriage is the illustration that's used for our union corporately with Jesus Christ. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 25, that we here are members even of one another. And later in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, he'll talk about how we're the one body of Jesus. Not that we're all individual bodies of Jesus, but the one body of Jesus. And some are a hand and others are a foot and here's an eye over here. And he goes on with the illustration in this way. We are members of one another. We are one body. And that means if you're a Christian, you can't just think about yourself. It means that if you are Christian, you are no longer just an individual. It means that if you are a Christian, there's something happening in your culture that's teaching you to believe that you are just on your own, that you live for yourself, that has nothing to do with who you are in Jesus. Because you are part of a corporate reality, the one body of Jesus Christ. So how you live matters. How you live deeply affects everybody in this church. And gospel wisdom joyfully gives up rights and freedoms and possessions and time and energy in order to build up others. That's what gospel wisdom does. I'm going to spend the next little while just being real practical with this. There's a lot of things that we can talk about, just practical applications. Let's do that now. I think that the first very clear application is probably COVID. Right? We're, we're kind of drawing maybe to an end in some ways or to a new stage, but that maybe makes the point even the more clear. Because this church is full of people who have different concerns, who have different vulnerabilities, who have different opinions, all relating to the pandemic. But if we only look to our own needs, we're going to tear down the church of Jesus. We're going to sin against Jesus in our disregard for one another. So even if you have a freedom or a right to do something, Paul says that we must consider not just the truthfulness of that position, right? After all, the, the Corinthians who were strong, they were right, right? They were right, Paul says. But the truthfulness of the position isn't the only thing we think about. We think about in love how the decisions we make affect those around us. And by the way, we can't make a nice, neat analogy to the strong or weak brother to COVID. Just to be real clear about that. People in favor of masks are not the strong. People uh, in favor of, I don't know, not getting a vaccine are not the weak. We, we, we can't do that. That's not how this works, right? But we have to live this principle, all of us. How do my actions affect those around me? How can I live to build others up, not just simply according to the truth? 
think this is especially important important right now, like we talked about at the beginning of the gathering. You know, we're in this new stage and we're all kind of figuring out how to go from where we are to the, this next step. And some people might be trickling back in person. Some people might not be. We're going to be all over the place where, where we're at. How are we going to live together as a community with those who have different views? Let's live together with grace and with sacrifice and with love, seeking to build one another up here in the church, denying ourselves and putting them ahead of us. This is just one application, but there are others. So let's go on. Some of us feel strong in the knowledge that as Christians, I'm called to freedom. I have a freedom. I have a freedom to listen to certain music, to watch certain movies, to drink alcohol, to go to certain places. But other Christians, maybe from different cultural backgrounds, different perspectives, they don't share your opinions about those freedoms. So how will you live in relationship with those who might be troubled in their consciences by your practice of your freedoms? Will you be careful to give up your right in order to serve a brother or a sister in love? Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. There's a cultural angle to this. As you may have noticed, Christ City Church in Kitsilano is getting a little bit more diverse as, as the time goes on. Some of us have different cultural perspectives on things as well. So how do we live conscious and careful to pay attention to where one another are at? Another example might be one's political convictions. We have a wide variety of political convictions in this church. And I would venture to say that some of them are closer to biblical truth than others right? My own. Mine are the closest to biblical truth, just so we're clear. <laughs> when it comes to daily life at, at a church like Christ City Kitsilano, where there is a great diversity of political opinions, how do we live then in relationship with those who might actually have their consciences troubled by my political conviction? Right? Am I going to insist on the debate we're going to hash this out right now. And I'm going to show you why I'm right. <laughs> or, or are we willing to step back and, and you know, take a, a deep breath and realize, man, we are one in Jesus Christ. Will you give opportunity in the discussion to focus on the things that unite us as Christians? There is one God over all. Jesus is the King of Kings. He's returning. We are part of his kingdom. Those things all come first even before the political opinions that I might have. Or if we come at this from a different angle, and we should, we could talk about it this way. See, scholars writing on 1 Corinthians 8, and, and I've already alluded to this, they think Paul may also have been concerned about weaker and stronger, not merely in terms of conscience, but in terms of vulnerability and social position. Some had means and some didn't. Some were strong because of what they had. Some were weak because of what they did not have. So what gospel wisdom could we apply then from that to ourselves? Well, I think in, in our church, it might look like this. At Christ City Church, some here have strong social positions. Some have strong financial positions. Some people have friends and family and spades. I'm very blessed. Some are lonely. Some are poor. 
Some have lots of recreational opportunities and some have none. There's a diversity of people here at the church. So how might we live then in gospel wisdom that's characterized by selfless love in each of those situations? How do you live using all that you've been given? It's a gift that you've received from the Lord. It's a blessing that you've been given. How do you use that to turn that outwards and to seek to bless those around you? I think one way you might do it is by looking out for those that aren't talking to someone. When you see someone who's alone and quiet, maybe sitting by themselves, think of it as an emergency. Go and sit with them. But don't just do that one Sunday. Befriend them. Have them over for lunch. Have them over again that week and for lunch the next week. Build friendships with those that can't repay you. Build friendships with those that don't have the same popularity or influence that you might. Pay attention to the needs of those around you. Don't just live looking to yourself. Be sensitive to what others might need. Look for ways to meet those needs in your community groups. If it's a big need, talk to us as the elders. As we work towards getting this deacon plan launched, talk to the deacons. Work towards meeting the needs of those around you, those who don't have what you have. I want you to stop for a moment and I want you to just look around the church. Actually do it. Actually look around the church. Just notice that not everyone's the same as you. That not everyone experiences life the way that you experience it. How can you serve one another in love by giving up what you have to build up and to bless those around you? See, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. But if we're honest, love's stinking hard. Right? Because sacrificial love is this lovely idea until you have something to sacrifice. Right? Until you're tired one evening. Until saying yes to helping someone over here means saying no to what you really want to do over here. So how then can we grow as a church to live this? Christ City, you are empowered. If your faith is in Jesus, you are empowered in the gospel by the Holy Spirit to grow in living lives of love in an incredibly countercultural way that our world is desperate for. You know how you're going to grow in it? You're going to grow in it according to what Paul said already in verse 3. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. This idea that, that true knowledge only comes through a deep relationship with God. You want to know how to grow in selfless love? You got to go deep in Jesus. You got to go deep in Jesus. You got to seek him with all of your heart. You got to think about your life right now and what's getting in the way of you and your relationship with the Lord. Your first call as a Christian is to love him with all your soul, with all your heart, with all your mind. Seek him above everything. Worship him with all that you have. Delight in his grace and his kindness to you. Get to know and to understand and delight in the ways that he has condescended to save you even when you are still a sinner. And his mercy and his kindness and his grace. And as you receive his love for you, his Holy Spirit within you will empower you to grow in sacrificing in love for others. Would you pray with me? 
Father, we need you. Jesus, we need you. Spirit, we need you. Would you change us? Lord, we rejoice. I, I praise you for all the ways that we see selfless love that looks like Jesus happening at Christ City Church. It's, it's incredible. It's beautiful. But would you grow us in it? More and more and more. Would you help us not live as individuals just for ourselves, but as part of one body for the good and the benefit of those around us? Or would you change us? In Jesus' name, amen.